Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hey everybody, it's me, your Willy Wizard Jake. And it's your bristling bruiser Holden McNeely, and we are so excited to announce Page 7 and Wizard and the Bruiser live in Los Angeles, California. Wednesday, December 11th, 2019 at the Regent Theater. Tickets are only $22. And where can they get them, Jake? Type in your little web bar. Go to lastpodcastnetwork.com slash p7live. That's lastpodcastnetwork.com slash p7live. We'll see you there, folks. Or else I'll cry. Yeah, he'll cry. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here hanging out with Travis Morningstar. Do we need to talk about Papa John? Why? Oh, well, Papa John is not doing well. He's not doing great. I, I did see an interview with him. He's he's puffy. He, he might be eating look, a little bit of his own product. He looks exactly like Pizza the Hut from Spaceballs. A little bit. He he went the plastic surgery route, and but then your face changes as you get older, yeah. and, the, and the surgery, the plastic, the plastic doesn't change. No, and let me ask you, is this too many pizzas? 40 pizzas in 30 days. Is that what he ate? That is what he ate. <laughs> Is that too uh, many pizzas, or is no, that no? It's not. That, no, or, Papa. He is Papa John for crying out loud. I actually think this. You know, we he, ha, he has had some negative press. I, he has had some negative <laughs> press because he's done some bad but things. But I didn't realize he like he takes in pizza like energy, like Superman takes energy from the sun. He's getting high on his own supply, or, my friend. Or from wait from Krypton. Is, Don't get that wrong. Yeah, I, sorry, sorry. I'm not the expert on that, buddy. But yeah, P- Papa John is. Uh, He's in an interesting place right now. <laughs> his, if, I, I don't. If, if you haven't watched this interview, I mean, it's. I think it's exploding on the internet right now. It is. But it is. Uh, it's. It's a 26 second clip where Papa John seems to have swallowed one of those like anonymous witness voice changer devices. Yeah. And uh, he has promised that big things are about to be revealed. I don't know if it's about Epstein. No I don't idea. know. I don't know if it's about. Um, maybe they're creating like a, a new p- type of pizza, but. Big things are about to be revealed in the world of Papa John. You heard it here first, folks. Abe Lincoln's top hat revealing Papa John killed Jeffrey Epstein. Yes. Why wouldn't he? He's got a lot on his mind. And who knows the secret that Epstein took to his grave? Perhaps what made their sauce so good for so many years. And why 40 pizzas? Why 40 pizzas? I guess. Why, and what does it have to do with his they, death? But were they large pizzas? Well, I, I I want him to clarify if it's slices or if it's entire pizzas. Because if you're doing a, if you're doing forty 
pizzas in 30 days that means you're doing like a kobayashi style you're like training for competitive eating at that point yeah it's like that movie supersized me but no one was filming him do <laughs> no, it he was filming it was so. purely for like uh just just to report back in his own words what what his experience was like and you know he really wore it in his pores well speaking of food uh and mass quantities of food a little bit later on in this episode we have a great conversation for you with pete paxton pete paxton is the author of rescue dogs but he has also gone undercover inside many numerous factory farms so we talk extensively about what's going on with the dog trade with factory farming uh with the environment it really ties into a lot of things and i thought the conversation was great yeah as someone who eats a lot of meat i was like i almost rethought it for a second but you know what i am gonna do have the impossible burger this this guy is is big time for me really brave i if you watch if you watch the documentaries that he's in he is go, he's living in like extremely cheap motels. He's working odd jobs at Taco Bell and, and McDonald's to well, then, that's not what makes no, no, him no, brave. To then fund his living situation in order to work at a kennel where he has to witness brutal, brutal dog murder, yeah. uh, animal murder. Uh, at the hands of basically this the cast of Deliverance. Well, so it's an exciting. So stick around because that's going to be nothing but fun. Um, but no, it really is an important conversation. And what were the name of the two documentaries he had on HBO? Uh, so the first one is Dealing Dogs, which is about um, puppy mills essentially uh, throughout the country, but specifically this one in Arkansas. And then the other one is called Death on a Factory Farm about basically just really sadistic treatment of pigs that are used for uh, for food. All right. So make sure you stick around, listen to that. It's informative. And uh, by the end of the conversation, I think we actually got a couple of solutions, which, which is, is always what good. we're yeah, trying you, to we bring. We don't want to because... just gripe about it. It's a horrible situation. But uh, but yeah, I asked as we we ask him, like, what can we do? You know, what what is there to do in, in such a bleak situation? But he does have he does provide some solutions for us. Absolutely. So we talk about that. Of course, we also have to get we're, we're going to talk briefly here right now uh, about impeachment. Uh, what's going on with that? Also, Travis has an article he wants to read or sort of um, break yeah, down excerpts regard, from yeah. excerpts from regarding Facebook and Facebook's election. Uh, I guess their role in the 2020 election. And also, I want to talk about this House bill uh, that just passed and it extends the Patriot Act when this went way under the radar. And uh, I find it to be, as I did when the Patriot Act passed, a horrible act, and it's something that needs to stop. So we're going to talk about that. But first, let's do impeachment. Basically, the impeachment inquiry, the testimony, the hearing phase is done. It is now going to vote. They're going to vote to vote. Uh, Jerry Nadler's uh, in charge of that. So we'll see what the Nadler committee has to say. So they vote to vote. And then from there, it looks like the House is going to impeach Donald Trump. And then from there, it looks like the Senate will not. And so, what I don't and, know. And you know, and what did we take away from the impeachment inquiry? <sighs> it's it, I would say the Democrats are playing basketball and the Republicans are playing basketball, a made-up game uh, that doesn't have any basis in reality. Because basketball's more fun, though. But you'll, yes, but you'll notice that's like you know Jim Jordan, all the Republicans that were doing the questions would reference essentially conspiracy theories and talking points from Fox News. So they, they in the Republicans' mind, the Ukrainian conspiracy theory about uh, Ukraine interfering with the 2016 elections is very real, and they're frustrated that 
we I don't know if they I don't know if they think it's real, oh, but they're well, manifesting it yes. in reality. Well, yes, they they do not believe it, but they certainly wish that everyone else would. Um, Muddy so the waters. We we basic we also learned that um, basically anyone who worked under Trump did not know exactly what their role was in Trump's big mind game because we had two it's different... It's hard to keep a company organized, we had you a, know? We had a, a main channel and then basically Trump's back channel of information going to and fro, the, to and fro from the White House to Ukraine. Yes. Honestly, that's how you know he's not a real businessman. He does not have a flowchart. Yes. Exactly. All businesses... Henry Marcus and I are working on flowcharts. We're trying to become businessmen. But you know for a fact Donald Trump was not a real one, which is why he had a reality television show and not a real company. Uh, he was a brander. He marketed him. He he basically just sold his name uh, to the highest bidder or, in some case, uh, the lowest bidder because he will put his name on anything. Uh, but so a lot, of, a lot of news sites are saying impeachment inquiry has not done anything, has not really moved the needle. Um, but just here's some polls from CNN okay. uh, that really kind of put it into context. Uh, back in 1998, during this during the sort of the same uh, phase of impeachment, Clinton in 1998 was 29% uh, impeach and then 67% don't impeach. That was sort of the the national poll, the temperature that was mm-hmm. taken. And then these presidents were not up for impeachment. But uh, in 2006, Bush, uh, the country said, you know, 69% uh, don't impeach, 30% impeach. If there were such an impeachment inquiry. He should have been impeached. He should have been um, thrown out of office. And then in 2014, Obama, 70% of the country did not want to even, you know, even talk about impeachment. And then 29%, of course, did. Now, in 2019, Trump is sitting at 43% don't impeach and 50% impeach, which is historically... That is more overwhelming than impeachment it has been considered in, in the past. Well, of course, and this administration has done things that those previous administrations did not do, um, although I would make a strong case that George W. Bush oh, absolutely. should have yeah. been thrown out of office. But you know how you get these people out of office? You vote them out of office and you run candidates that can actually win. There was recently just a poll. Uh, so anyway, long story short with impeachment. House is going to be done. House is done. House is going to vote. They're going to vote to impeach. It's going to go to the Senate. It's it's not going to happen. So anyway, that is what it is. But there was just a recent poll coming out that showed Biden losing to Donald Trump and Bernie beating Donald Trump by the highest margin. So I don't know what's going to happen. But it does seem and we'll get into some more polling data as you know, the election and the campaign continues to go forward here. But it does seem like Biden is falling. Biden is falling. He's scared. He's scared. I'm, I'm getting uh, I'm getting a lot of emails from a lot of the candidates um, you, I, that I did not ask for. No, um, no, you were on like every I'm mailing on every list. Every single mailing list. You're the bell of the ball before the before the last debate, the the last Democratic candidate d- debate. I got an email from Biden's campaign that said, and this is before the actual televised debate. I got an email from Biden that said. How did I do at the debate? Were you proud of me? Oh, so proud. Uh, so he wanted. He was asking if I was preemptively proud of Were his performance. Were you 30-year-old Travis Morningstar proud of Uncle Joe? Disgusted is what I was. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, and then and he's got other he's got other emails that sent out that say, like, you know, Bernie's making too much money. We got to, you know, he's ahead of me. Let's, let's, because so Bernie is really putting the fear of God into, into to Biden lately. Well, there you go. It's going to be an interesting, interesting 2020 and I cannot wait for votes to start coming in because then we will not have to hear about polling data. We will have actual data if, of course, you trust the vote. But, of course, we have to. 
We have to. Yeah, and then we can sleep the eternal sleep. Of course. So let's talk a little bit about 2020 going forward, as we were just sort of talking about, in the context of social media, specifically in the context of Facebook. Travis, you have an article that you want to break down a little bit. There is this Wall Street Journal article, and it, it is a little insight into how Facebook worked in the 2016 election and something that i wasn't aware of was how like symbiotic and cooperative facebook was with political parties during the 2016 election now was this um, both political parties or one in specific yeah this is both that's that's an interesting thing because republicans were more willing to work with uh facebook than democrats but that is fascinating to me because of course the rhetoric for the longest time was political bias uh against conservatives exactly well in in 2016 Facebook uh, happily did what was called embedding. Uh, so they took they took Facebook operatives and then they put them on the teams, on the campaigns of Trump and of Clinton. Okay. Clinton's team apparently resisted the embed a little bit more than Trump, who very, very happily embraced this guy named James Barnes. Who- so what was the purpose of them being embedded? Was it, it Was it supposed to be a journalistic role? No, it was literally like, what can I do to help you Uh, make more efficient your campaign on facebook so basically zuckerberg is just he's trying to for he's he's fluffing both sides exactly well this it's it's a way to um help trump it's a way to help any political candidate sort of better communicate their message but at the same time it's also somebody selling something to the campaign it's saying do you want to buy more ads right so they had this guy james barnes at the time he was 28 were they also giving data were they giving were they giving Absolutely. on the back end they were giving data of the people and everything like well, that? Well you have this one guy who works for Facebook who's giving you a window into the back end of Facebook and saying, here's how we can more target, better target, more specialize our our campaign uh messages right. to to more and more specific specific demographics. And so when we talk about people living in their bubbles, uh this isn't really it is their fault, but it's also manufactured. And I I br- I you know, I bring up Facebook because it is, and I don't want to sound hyperbolic, it is the most powerful megaphone in the history of the world. Right. That nothing, you know, like this, you're you're targeting people so specifically and sending, and you have unfiltered, unfettered messages that are going out to, the, to people's hands, like staring at them in their right. faces. And uh, it's just unchecked. And, and so for them, you're on your phone and you just think all of this is organic. You think all of this is natural. Uh, you have all of your biases being confirmed on a regular basis to the point where it just becomes reality. And everything is on equal footing. You see right. a, you see an article from CNN right next to an article from Breitbart. And you're how or I mean, not even that you'll see an article about, you know, the civil war in Yemen, followed by an article about. You know, Khloe Kardashian, or what? That's kind of a cliche to use the Kardashians, but that level of importance is given. Even sports, yeah. you know, you'll you'll have something about sports, and you'll have something about war and peace. But and so, it's like I love sports, but war is much more important. So they had these operatives from Facebook, just helping them sharpen their blades there uh, to go into this sort of social media media battlefield. Um, and, you know, in 20 in 2016, the social media expenditures for political campaigns was one point four billion. In 2020, we're looking at three billion dollars just so, in social media, just in social media. And this is super PACs, campaigns, private Every, donations, yes, the whole everything thing. going in. It's three billion dollars to better communicate whatever you want to on, lie on this. Yes. I, I mean, yes. Communi- communicate. Well, because, yeah. you know, Facebook, we've just spoke previously about this. 
they don't they're not interested in in uh no, they're not they're, parsing out what is truth and what is lie right um they're not interested because zuckerberg is doing this whole song and dance about who is to say what's truth and lie he's doing like a, a freshman college dorm uh, uh exp- explanation and of I, objectivity i understand that point when it comes to um political debate but when it comes to a deep fake video uh, you know, like the one that Trump shared with Nancy Pelosi. When it comes to things that are truly fake, we're not talking about um, a political difference between like, it's not a political difference in the sense of like, let's try to figure out, oh, like what's what's a what's a political where you could have two different sides and both of those sides can be telling the truth, but they have a different solution. I suppose like we were talking about regarding the Kurdish, uh, regarding the Kurds and withdrawing the troops yes. and things like that. This is, you can have two different opinions and neither of those are necessarily false or necessarily true, but there are truths and there are falsehoods. Yes. A, a deep fake video, for example, that are going to be all over the place in 2020. No one is going to know what's real. No one is going to know what's fake. And the key holder, in this case, Mark Zuckerberg, he is the one who actually could tell us. Yeah. And, and he is just, refu- he's just, he's just saying, you know what? Not my responsibility. It's such a, it is just so offensive to, I don't like the term offensive. It's just, it's just a jackass move yeah. to create this monster and then unlike Dr. Frankenstein, not try to control it at all. So for the, Sort of the technically uh, illiterate, you know, I, the some of the things that they lay out in this article about the ways in which the Facebook operative would help the Trump campaign. These are not foreign concepts, A/B testing, that sort of thing. But it does give you an insight into just how specialized Facebook allows some of this uh, marketing and the communication. And I'm just reading an excerpt from the Wall Street Journal article. The Trump campaign would give Mr. Barnes, the the, op, the Facebook operative, James Barnes, uh, would give Mr. Barnes certain videos or images, such as a video of Donald Trump Jr. urging voters to help board, build the border wall. Mr. Barnes would then experiment with different ways to display the ad. One might say donate, while another would say give. Some would give. Some videos would be vertical, others square. Buttons could be highlighted in red or green. Each variation of the ad would be targeted to certain demographics. It could be as specific as 18 to 24-year-old men who visited the Trump campaign donation page and made it to the third step but never finished, uh, according to Mr. Barnes. They tested wow. all the variations and doubled down on those that raised the most money. Trump campaign officials have said that some days the campaign would turn out over 100,000 separate versions of, of Facebook ads to better target to specific demographics. Wow. So you have, I mean, that's that's just called A-B testing. But the the cooperation with which Facebook does this with uh, the political campaign is is just like, I guess I, I'm a little surprised at, at how... Uh, how purposeful. much yeah purposeful and the extent to which they give these sophisticated tools to the political campaigns now yeah. in 2020 one of the things that facebook has rolled back on is this embed sort of operation okay so they're not going to be physically handing you know giving uh here's james he works for facebook but you know rest assured trump has more and more of these sophisticated tools at his disposal. He has a digital campaign uh, a strategist who knows how to use Facebook now that they have been taught how to use Facebook. And right. now they're spending twice as much money uh, to to get these lies out, to, to better specialize their messaging. So, I mean, I mean you know, Facebook it- is going to be a, it's like Chernobyl. It's like cracked open, radiating, MAGA radiation in microwaving brains. It is going to be... It is going to be 2016 times two. This is one of the ironies where it's like, we want to say, don't believe what you see, right? It's 1984. Don't believe what you see. 
But at the same time, the flip side of that is don't believe what you see. Yeah. This is hence we have so much mistrust. We have so much uh, disbelief in different political parties, different political ideologies. Bernie Sanders' team is doing a good job on social media as well. But when it comes to Facebook, it's just not the place to be if you want information. And I, I'm off of it, so I, I forget how powerful Facebook is. But, but my now, God. Um, James Barnes, the guy I mentioned from Facebook, the, the whole article is about him, really. And uh, the reason they bring him up is because the Trump campaign really does credit a lot of their victory to this 28-year-old for securing their victory because of the, the, the of Facebook's help in the in the campaign. And um, according to James Barnes, he now kind of regrets, you know, ha- having uh, influenced the election in this way. And so what he wants to do is he's going to help the other side this time. Right. So he is going to help uh, any Democratic candidate, which, you know what, uh, obviously I don't want Trump to win, but it also is extremely terrifying that this now, I guess, 31-year-old can so easily just be like, you know what? I didn't like the way that I helped this other guy win. I think I'm going to switch my direction in this way. I'm going to move all of my power to this area to influence an election that I know I can influence. Right. And Absolutely. We talk about Russian influence. My God. It's it's insane to me that yeah. this employee of this tech company is aware of the power that he wields. Absolutely. Um, it speaks volumes about the the power that Facebook has over the election. It is not a it is not hi- hyperbole to say that this is the a, a turning point for a campaign is the kind of uh power that you wield over your Facebook uh strategy. Yep, absolutely. And we cannot lose sight of how uh nefarious and how large this is. I mean, these are systemic issues facing our country. These are new issues facing our country. And we have got to, at the very least, because it doesn't seem as if there's going to be legislation regarding Facebook and allowing them to spread lies all over the world, all over this country. We have to just keep it. You have to keep it in your mind. Um, And if things seem like if you're just getting the same information over and over and over again, and all of a sudden you start agreeing with every single post you see, you have got got. They They have built you in a cocoon of your own potential ignorance. There is a great speech that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen gave Borat. At, He's a genius at the uh, Anti Defamation League, and he really. One of the things is I I always complain about Facebook, and I you know everyone is complaining about Facebook's influence, but the thing is there hasn't been a lot of solutions offered to in a way to sort of curtail all this influence, and he really did uh, bring a couple to the table. You know, thinking of Facebook as a publisher. You don't have to immediately publish these things in lightning fast speed. You know, we could we could delay the process, especially for someone who's buying an ad or, you know, there can be fact checkers brought in more. This is one of the most powerful, wealthiest companies with some of the smartest people on the planet. Right. They certainly can do better at fixing the defects of their product by by yeah by bringing in people from uh the ADL or fact checkers just more more and better quality fact checkers the 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 lie is that we can't figure out what is truth and what is Absolutely. lie that is the lie all right well speaking of what's truth and what is false 
One of the things we know is true is that the government's been spying on us for a very long time, specifically using the Patriot Act. Of course, that's the post 9-11 law that gave the federal government. Basically, it gave the federal government sweeping surveillance and search powers and circumvented traditional law enforcement rules. The Patriot Act was just allowed to continue on. Uh, the Democrats voted for it as well. This is a stopgap spending bill to fund the government for the next three months. Uh, just 10 Democrats defied the leadership to vote against the resolution. That was uh, Talib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Ilhan Omar. Uh, this is according to uh, Talib. She says, I cannot in good conscience vote in favor of a continuing resolution that, that reauthorizes unconstitutional mass surveillance authorities. Uh, she goes on to say, especially under a president who has just who has retweeted images of his opponents jailed and suggests anyone who disagrees with him is criminal. AOC tweeted before the vote. Yeah, that's going to be a no from me, dog, because that's the world we live in now. Also, uh, some Republicans were against it. Um, Justin Amash, Massey was also against it. This is a strange Venn diagram where you do have some Tea Party people. You do have some uh, progressive uh, people coming together and both realizing uh, that this is a gross, gross attempt from the government to surveil the people of this country under the guise of national security. So the Patriot Act, Democrats supported it, Republicans supported it. A uh, few on both sides of the line did not support it, but it just got reauthorized and it needs to be talked about more. That one time that I hear about this, uh, there was no national conversation about the Patriot Act. It was never supposed to be here forever. And the fact that they slammed it into this uh, stopgap spending bill to fund the government for the next few months is absolutely disgusting. And it's also further proof that they know the house controversial, how sketchy, how unconstitutional the Patriot Act is. Yeah. That's why they slam it in. And it, it, these are, this is a pork when they, when we talk about like uh, bills that are full of pork in this case, uh, this little piggy is defying the constitution of the United States. And the fact that the Democrats went along with it again is why so many people have such mistrust in the two party system that we have right now, because both sides at the end of the day are still doing their damnedest to erode our national freedoms and to erode our constitutional rights. So the Patriot Act, the fact that it just passed again without a national conversation, it's, I just think it's disgusting. I mean, it was the it was the ten Democrats and then and then a few Freedom Caucus Republicans uh, that got. To, I mean, the, the nice thing is the Patriot Act is bringing together two two different extremes on both sides. Well, I mean, it it shows that the Patriot Act is now normal. It's calcified exactly. in our culture. Exactly. And it's like the how you you start a boil with a lobster in it at a very low temperature and bring it up to a high temperature so you don't notice that you're boiling. Obviously, the junior Congress people are the ones that are saying, wait a minute, actually, this is extremely fucked up. Uh, it's like when you're in a sci-fi dystopian movie where they're just like very normally talking about some weird thing like, oh, those are the lactation machines that, that extract milk from your body as you right. go to the bus. It's just like a normal part of the, the landscape, the Patriot Act for a so lot of these people. It really is, man. We've been slowly boiling frogs for a long time. Key provisions of the Patriot Act were set to expire on December 15th, including Section 215. Now, that is the legal underpinning of the call detail records program exposed in the very first 
Edward Snowden leak. This is according to Representative Justin Amash. Uh, he says it's surreal. Amash is an independent. He left the Republican Party. He does not like Donald Trump. Republicans have decried FISA abuse against the president and his aides. He said, referring to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the Democrats have highlighted Trump's abuse of his executive powers, yet they're teaming up to extend the administration's authority to warrantlessly gather data on Americans. So both sides in this case, other than a few on uh, within both parties are just completely wrong and it's a reminder that we are up against something that is bigger than we even imagine uh the fact that the house just was able to pass this this is obviously a house situation because of course the house controls the purse yes the fact that they were able to just push this through no national conversation bipartisan it is completely and utterly well, disgusting so much- the patriot act is here to stay for another Till, well, till March when they do it again. but uh, Until they just do it again. But so it it's here very, to stay forever. This is very much like the dead-eyed slaughterhouse workers we talk about in this upcoming interview with, yeah. with Peter Paxton. Um, you know, where you just sort of like you're you're inundated or overwhelmed by your work. So you just let it sort of wash over you. And This is according to Representative Bobby Rush of Illinois. Um, he says, although I do have serious concerns with reauthorizing Section 215, Uh, He goes on to say, we must focus on the bigger picture here. In late October, Rush signed a letter co-authored by Representative Rashida Tlaib and Earl Blumauer, which read, we will not support any legislation that extends Section 215's sunset date if it fails to contain robust reforms that protect innocent people from unjust surveillance. On Monday night, Amash submitted an amendment to the strip uh, to strip the Patriot Act language from the budget bill, but the amendment was blocked by Democrats on the rules committee. Uh, So by tucking the measure into a must-pass bill, Nancy Pelosi forced many of the members who opposed the Patriot Act to vote in favor of its extension. And if you were wondering, Bobby Rush, indeed, uh, he ended up voting in favor of the extension because it was in a bill that was a must-pass bill. This is this is disgusting. This is a this is why the American people feel as if they are completely screwed and bent over the table when it comes to our government just doing whatever the hell they want to do to us and with us just sitting here uh, you know looking like a bunch of buffoons worrying about what Donald Trump just tweeted 5 seconds ago uh, as opposed to being concerned with our civil liberties now not just being eroded but now as 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 Travis said calcified into our public conscious this yeah. is just like the, the this was not the way it was and it's not the way it has to be but it uh, is but it is and but uh, it is and that's why when you yeah. create legislation like the Patriot Act, when you act in a way that is in response to something as tragic as 9-11, but the, the problem is the, the response to something as tragic as 9-11 is never rolled back. They always, The more power the government can have, the more power they will always keep. And, you know, when we, when, we, when we talk about data collection, we often talk about it in the context of social media, as we were talking about with Facebook. The government is also doing it. And that's exactly why Facebook is also selling our data to the government uh, for for targeted marketing, for targeted campaigns. And now, of course, under the guise of national security, the government extends the Patriot Act, which needs to go the way of the dinosaur. Trust no one. It's just, you know, this is just another example of, you know, yeah, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And the more that I, you know, it's funny, I was talking to Marcus about this. He's just like the, the, the more that I'm. The, the longer that this charade of democracy goes on, he's like, the more that I kind of just want Bernie Sanders. Yeah, of course. Well, yes. You know, that's what he, that's what, but that's all that, 
Yes. That's what he's hitting on. We need it's a that, huge, it's that level of anger. We, we need, need something massive. We need massive. a reset. And that's why, as we talked about on last week's episode with Obama being like, they don't want change. They don't want drastic change. It's like, yeah, we actually do. We actually do. I think people um, really, really do. And I think this is why ugh. this this election is important. It's because we now know that this is we have to strike while the iron is hot. You know, like th- we cannot go back to status quo because guess what? Status quo leads to Trump. And so we have to we have to do a huge reset. We have to we have to bend in a different direction while the the metal is still still very hot. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And the fact I don't know. I mean, let me know if you guys have heard this before, because I saw it on a very, very few amount of websites and uh, the Progressive Caucus went along with it for the most part. And it's just it's horrible. Um, All right. Well, speaking of horrible, what a fun episode we have today. Yes. This guy, Pete Paxton, he is incredible. He is the author of Rescue Dogs. He also has two documentaries out on HBO, Death on a Factory Farm and... Dealing Dogs. And Dealing Dogs. So we talk with him about, yeah, again, factory farms, and we talk with him about uh, animal rights and how we can learn more about the problem so that we can be part of the solution. So enjoy this interview with Pete Paxton. And now it's time for our interview with animal rights activist and author of Rescue Dogs. Pete Paxton is with us. Thank you so much for being on the show, Pete. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I have to say, before anything, I swore that I would. My girlfriend wants y'all to know (laughs) that she is your biggest fan. And that she go, she literally goes to sleep at night with earphones in, listening to stories about serial killers and aliens from your podcast. Well, buddy, you got to be careful. Make sure all the antifreeze in the garage is stocked full because if you start yeah. t- getting Gatorade and it's a little bit sweeter than it usually is, she's trying to kill you, my friend. Okay, right, absolutely. You, okay. you got to be careful. We'll tell her thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's both excited and and uh, envious that I get to be on. Yes. All right. We did it. Well, so both of your lives are kind of like steeped in the macabre then because your daily life is witnessing the most some of the most horrific images I've ever seen put onto film. Yes, for those that don't know, so what Pete does is he goes undercover to puppy mills. Uh, he exposes a lot of the human, uh, well, human rights and animal rights abuses that happen yep. in these puppy mills. So let's just start by painting the picture before we really get in depth here on animal abuse and the systemic animal abuse that happens all over this country, uh, specifically in this country we'll be focusing on mostly. How big is the puppy mill industry? What are we talking about here? Uh, how many millions and millions of dollars is this industry? Oh, man, th- th- that is a good question. It-, it is hard to say how many millions of dollars there are. Cause, so what you have is you have about 2 million puppies are bred and sold for pets a year, right? Out of about, give or take, 10,000 puppy mills that are in the country. But that's, that's difficult to pin down that number because some are federally licensed, some are not, some mm. are completely off the radar. Um, and when, when you're talking about a, a puppy mill puppy – they're going to sell for generally, you know, around $1,500, $2,000 at a pet store. You want to buy straight from the breeder, you might spend a few hundred up to, you know, up to 2000 So right. it's an enormous amount of money. Obviously, it's substantially more than you'd pay to get a dog from a shelter. And the, the issues that surround it, uh, I'm so glad that, you know, you want to discuss this because I know y'all are a little more willing to kind of get into the reality of it is that right. um, 
the abuse that dogs suffer in puppy mills and what it is they go through, it, it's something that is, unless you see it, you don't believe it. Right. And um, the reason that my job is to get undercover footage, surveillance footage of these facilities is to see them when they don't think that the public or a mm. government inspector is looking. And when that's the case, you see something completely different than you see otherwise. Yeah, there's there's this there's this scene in Dealing Dogs where you're undercover and you come across a beagle that is just yeah. it's it's ripped apart, it's barely clinging to life, it's covered in mud and blood. Uh, and you go to one of the owners of the kennel and you say, hey, I think this dog is like on the on its last leg. It can barely keep its o its eyes open. Uh, and the guy is in his Easter dress. He's like in a button up blue shirt. And he's like, look, I got to go to an Easter egg hunt. And he leaves the dog to die. And mm. that is your that is your instructions in the kennel is to leave the dog to die and wait till the next morning to basically throw it under a uh, like a, a wooden board as it's as its tomb yeah yeah it just well, goes to show you the sort of the nonchalance of the the abuses in these places yeah that that facility they were selling uh dogs and cats um they, they did breed some dogs on their own but the vast majority of what they had they got they're called random source other mm. people would breed them some of the dogs were stolen pets so you'd have all these trucks come in um and they'd have uh beagles and, and walkers and blue ticks and all this and and their skin and bones and their snot running out of their noses and amongst them would be i remember one time was this golden cocker spaniel that had a perfume smell to her um another was a, a chocolate lab that would sit and shake hands on command right yes. and so they were they were stealing pets you know and um we managed to get that target shut down but it took a lot to do it and when it comes this to is, this was martin martin creek in arkansas right that's martin creek kennels and yeah in williford arkansas and um what was what was good about that case was that it created a void in the system of animals being sold to research that wasn't filled back in it's not like other types of targets like them sprouted up and thought well now we're gonna buy all the dogs and sell them to research it was this right. big black eye to the medical community um and to uh the vivisection industry uh because i mean this this place was selling to universities all over the country i got to see the uh the disposition records for where they're going i mean it was you know you name it, 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 and, it and this is terrible to say i'm not trying to make anybody feel bad but um man if you were a vet student around the 80s and 90s, you know, right. early 2000s, and you ever dissected a dog or cat, um, odds are came from Martin Creek Kennel. Yeah, and I mean, right. just to give an example of the type of the type of things that the kennel was selling for to research facilities, the Martin Creek would allow heartworm to develop in dogs, mm -hmm. and then they would kill the dogs and rip open their chest, removing the heart full of heartworms, and then sell that heart to research facilities. Is that, is that right? Oh, that's yep, that's a hundred percent right. Yeah. When we first came across, um, uh, we did some surveillance before I, uh, decided to, before they had me go undercover into the facility and we just saw dogs that were, you know, they're, they're, they're cut open, their organs are thrown out and we see this and they're, and they're all piled up in this, in this trench that was dug in the ground. And then we see a table next to it, next to the trench and it's coated in blood, and it has a bloody knife on it mm. and a bloody bottle of saline solution, which is because 
and I'm, I'm not making this up because the guys that worked at the kennel never bothered to read the instructions on a saline bottle or mm-hmm. on the dog dip they used, which is its own thing. They just, they just saw it and thought saline, that must be what you use for cleaning. And so they would, they would for some reason use that to cut, to kind of clean off a, a knife that was soaked in, and, and covered in blood. And then they would just cut open dead, they're cutting open dead dogs with it. I don't really get the right. point, but they'd cut them open. They Then they'd pull their hearts out. They'd squeeze the heartworms in these containers. And then it was uh, when they finally, when I finally got um, uh, Billy Gann Jr., one of the workers, to admit to me that's what they were doing, I, I then realized what was going on when I'd, I'd hear him drive off from the main kennel and he'd take a few dogs with him, and then I'd hear these gunshots, and then he'd come back with blood all over his legs. Right. And that's what was going on. So when you say they are selling these um, organs to universities, is that the main trade when it comes to dog parts? Is it mostly for study? Or is there another, is there another field or another, uh, another group of people? Is there another marketplace uh, for these uh, cadavers, I suppose at that point, everything there's it's for everything. It, it's for veterinary students. It's for um, they uh, they'll use dogs in dog feed trials um, for some for some types of dog food. Um, pesticides are still mm. tested on dogs. Things that don't necessarily make sense. Um, so it, yeah, they get used for for everything. But yeah, it, they they do continue to want to test on the heartworms. And also all the other kinds of worms that dogs can have in their right. uh, uh, their GI tracts, which is which is part of what um, and it's another thing they would do at Martin Creek Kennels. They'd if a dog had those worms, they'd co- they'd look at stool samples, and if they saw that dog has worms, they would then collect the worms. And if the dog died while being untreated, so be it. Damn. So we're talking to Pete Paxton, uh, author of Rescue Dogs. Check out this book. Um, so, Pete, how did you get into this area in the first place? Because we hear about puppy mills. Obviously, we've talked here on Abe Lincoln's Top Hat about California's legislation, um, you mm-hmm. know, ban- banning puppy mill dogs. Uh, of course, they have no kill shelters, which is good. Uh, but it's also very difficult when you have so many dogs oftentimes lined up five to a cage. It's a brutal, brutal, brutal existence. What got you so involved in this puppy mill investigation? Was this something that were you an animal rights lover? Uh, was there something that happened in your life where you were opened up to this world? Because this is definitely one of those topics that is under the radar. That is no oh, yeah. one wants to think about it. I mean, everyone cries at the Sarah McLaughlin, you know, dog rescue video. Uh, you know, like people just don't want to see dogs in pain, but we have to see them in pain in order to solve the problem. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Well, it was. It, it started when it was. Uh. When I was a, a teenager, I was you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I wanted to go into law enforcement. And um. So when I was looking at different law enforcement agencies, that's back when uh, Douglas came out with the book Mind Hunter, right? Talking mm. about the behavioral science unit of the FBI. Now everybody knows about the behavioral science unit and profiling and what it is. Right. But um. But that was new back then, right? And so I thought. So I st- I really started studying serial killers, and I've just. I looked into, I've read so many books about serial killers and I, and then I was also looking into, you know, um, other, other units of the FBI and the DEA. And I thought, you know what, the most evil thing I can imagine is what serial killer is doing. That's what I want to do. I want to, I'm going to join the FBI and I want to track these guys down. And then he came out with a, a journey into darkness. And when he did that, I remember those part of the book said, 
Um, after we came out with Mindhunter explaining how we track down serial killers at the FBI, everyone and their mother is applying to join the unit, and we don't need all of you. Right. And so that's when I realized you know, that no matter what kind of law enforcement agency you're talking about, there's people lining up out the door to get into it. But there were, there's like a handful of people doing, doing what I do in the animal rights movement. And so I thought I will combine those two passions. And it, what really kicked it off was that what I learned about at the time and what I have experienced, it's been about 18 years now doing undercover work of uh, puppy mills, factory farms, slaughterhouses, and commercial fishing is that the worst things that I've ever read about a serial killer doing, I've seen similar or identical things happen to animals, but on a mass scale. Right. And with dogs, what's particularly terrible is that when you have you know, the, the puppy mill industry, you, know, you, you go into your average pet store and you see a bunch of happy puppies. Right. And you can ask, you know, I want to make sure they're not coming from puppy mills. They'll say that they won't, and they'll even have clever videos. They'll say, look, you know, here's a video of that. We visited the kennels. Here's the dogs running around in a field and it's, and it's, and it's wonderful. And the dogs are never in cages. Here's pictures of the breeders with them. It's just all lies. In, in fact, I was just, just a week ago, I just got back from another trip in the field where well, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll, for a group called the companion animal protection society, I'll go out to pet stores and then, uh, you know, wear a covert camera and then ask people at the pet store, you know, who are your breeders? What are they like? Where do these puppies come from? And then I'll go out to go get eyes on those actual facilities that are selling them puppies and compare that information. So right. you have uh, you can have a cruelty angle, you can have USDA violations and you can have a consumer fraud angle. What percentage of dogs that you have researched when it comes to these? stores have come from the mills is it has any of these is it mostly things that don't check out when you do a little bit of research 100 percent, 100 percent. it's 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 you know when it comes to the the large you know the large the larger bit really massive commercial operations you always see dogs that are pacing and spinning in cages and you know they're mm. kind of like they're going they're going cage crazy right and the conditions that they live in sometimes is abysmal and sometimes is cleaner but the real trick and this is where it gets really really tough is that once you are up close and personal and you can really look at those dogs observe their behavior or get a dog in your arms and look at them that's when you see things that you don't even see from a distance and you'd never even see if you walked through well that was kind of my follow-up question to that when we walk into a uh, into a pet store Everyone is in there because they love animals. They're in there because they want to get a family pet. They're in there because, yep. uh, you know, they they want to look at the cute dogs. Uh, in no way do they have uh, malintent when they're going to these pet stores. So as a consumer, um, and I want to get into, there's so much to unpack here, but just as a consumer, mm-hmm. how do we know when we walk into a pet store, what are some warning signs that these animals have been mistreated? If If you walk into a pet store, there is absolutely no way to know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, other than uh, other than this, I, I, I can I can promise you this, and I can give you some sources to go to for all your listeners who want to, you know, verify this. If you see a puppy being sold in a pet store, that puppy did come from a puppy mill. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just that simple. Now, if you if you're not an investigator like me, you're really going to have to know how to do your research to find out where they came from. But um, I, I can give you I can give you some basic tips, even in a complicated place like California. Yeah, California. If if the puppy's in a pet store, the puppy came from a puppy mill. That's it. Even if they say it's a rescue, mm. and to dive straight into that, 
uh, the way it works is that California needs their law amended. They have a law, which is wonderful, that says you cannot sell a puppy from a pet store unless the puppy comes from a rescue. They need, they need to change the law so that it says that there can be no ownership of the puppy and no monetary interest in the puppy. Because what's happening is you have places that are licensed by the USDA to buy puppies and then sell them. They're called brokers, right? They normally sell them to pet stores. But now they just lost their whole market in California. So what they do is they set up a separate 501c3 nonprofit. And if and it, and and because they'll buy whole litters from their breeders and they'll right. say, well, I'll buy this amount from here and I'll take this other amount. But instead of me buying them under my USDA license, I'm going to buy them under my nonprofit. So that's why you see a, when you go into a pet store in California and they're selling puppies, that's why they're still eight to 10 weeks old. They're of the same age as, as any other puppy would be. They still cost up to $2,000 and they're still designer breed and purebred puppies. It's all a scam. Right. It's it's very interesting because I guess the conundrum then is, uh, what do we do? How do we stop this trade from happening? Because when you go into a pet store, they still need to be loved. You know, they're still animals yep. that need a home. So how do you, you know, it can't be solved by just saying, okay, no one buy dogs anymore. No one buy cats anymore. It's so systemic. What, like just the starting point, what has to happen uh, both legally, uh, within this industry, and just as a as a people, like what should we know? Like how do we stop this at the at the at the start of the process before we have the dog even in this world, even born before the dog is in the pet store? How do we curb? You know, the, we have two point seven million dogs a year that get euthanized and killed. Yep. You yep. know, so how do we curb that at the beginning? So, uh, you know, the, the ultimate thing here. Um, is adopt dogs. Like, so first of all, for all your listeners, if you bought a puppy from a breeder, you bought a puppy from a pet store, I'm sure you love your puppy. I'm not trying to, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure that you're a wonderful person. And if you, if you disagree with anything I say, or you don't want to agree with it, um, please accept my challenge to do your own research, even if you find something that you may not want to believe. Um, that said, I'm sure you love your puppy. Uh, but uh, adopting is the absolute solution. You know, it, 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 there are puppies that are in the pet stores, but I've worked undercover at a pet store. And I, and I can tell you that, you know, what happens is the puppies keep getting older and then they keep lowering the price. Someone's going to buy the puppy. Don't be the person that gets fooled. Let someone else get fooled. Right. It's all, right. it's always going to happen. It's not like we're going to snap our fingers today and we're going to say, well, if everyone adopts, then all these puppies are stuck. And what do we do about it? But I don't, what I'm not understanding is we have very strict, in many ways, we have actually fairly strict animal protection rights in this country. Oh, yeah. You know, you cannot just go out uh, and, and strangle your ex-girlfriend's or boyfriend's dog, for example. This is like we treat animal cruelty relatively seriously. So how right. is it that the people who are operating these mills, how is it that they are not that they're not facing criminal charges? How is it that they're allowed to be there? How, I mean, it seems as if the fact they're LLC'd with the government, the fact that these things, it is underground, yep. but it's also, it's also not underground. It's also like the government is, is, is uh, fully understands what these institutions are. I, I just don't yeah. understand how we have such strict animal cruelty laws in one area. And then in, an, in, in another area, we're allowing this 
disgusting industry to thrive? Okay, so so what we're looking at here, which it, that is an excellent question, and I and I have to say that that is that is the topic that I am most excited to discuss as an animal cruelty investigator. What what we're looking at, is, it's like you're standing in front of a pool. And I can give you an answer that lets you jump into the shallow end. But if you want, we can go right into the deep end. Um, and it's just, it just, it's explaining the whole process. And, and so it's like the, the shallow end of it. Well, let's go to, let's go to the deep end, baby. Let's jump, let's jump straight to the deep jump end. Jump into, okay, this is the deep end audience. All we right. love the deep end. I mean, none of us know how to swim, but we'll drown with you. All right. All right. Perfect. Okay. We're going to hit the bottom together. So the way this works is that I have to mention that puppy mills when, when you are talking about the laws that regulate them, how they're regulated, and the culture that surrounds them, it is synonymous with factory farms and slaughterhouses. Mm. And, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is you have the, US, the USDA license them. The U, literally, the U.S. Department of Agriculture licenses puppy mills. Right. The same people that are supposed to be inspecting your slaughterhouses. Right. They're the ones that are worried about how your dogs are being taken care of. And it shows because they enforce what's called the Animal Welfare Act, their own little set of regulations, totally separate from a state cruelty statute. Right. There is absolutely nothing that exists in the federal Animal Welfare Act that has anything to do with the psychological well-being of dogs. So it, they can say, hey, you can't have rust on the enclosure. I don't want to see any dirt on there. And his, this is the type of wire you should use. And this is how right. much, you know, all that. But they don't care if your dogs are spinning around going crazy in circles. So, you know, it, it's that what they do, just like with, uh, j- they look at dogs like livestock, right? right? So just like with hogs and with chickens and, and anything else, they are supposed to regulate an industry, but at the same time, they are supposed to make sure that that industry profits. You cannot do both. So obviously they choose the profit side. Right. And so an, an example of what happens with that is that uh, one of the things that we really look for is, is you get a dog, and if you can actually get a dog out of a cage, even in the cleanest looking kennel, you start to see that dog has matted fur. You pull the dog's lips up, and you will see just teeth rotting out of a dog's head. It's a very normal thing, or, or toenails that are curled up into the paw, right? You'll see interdigital cysts if they're on cage wire. And the USDA then changed the rules to say no longer is matted fur or bad teeth a veterinary care violation. Because if it is a veterinary care violation, there are certain places like like uh, New York City that says if you have a veterinary care violation for a breeder for one of the puppies in your pet store, you can't buy from them. Mm-hmm. So the USDA responded by protecting the industry to say we're going to get rid of the most common violations, right? And and so you know you wow. have that 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 is that is like government corruption, right? Now yes. for law enforcement, it's the same thing. It's that you have. In, in, in most states, the way a, a cruelty statute is going to read is that it's going to say you cannot cause unne- unnecessary suffering to an animal. So if an animal is in need of veterinary care and you're, n- and you're not euthanizing the animal and you're not providing veterinary care, you're causing unnecessary suffering. I just thought it was uh, so interesting, you know, because I'm sitting, sitting here staring at Puffin, uh, my German spitz that I got from South Korea. Uh-huh. He was on the uh, South uh-huh. Korean meat market. 
you know, obviously he was going to be a Poke Bowl, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we think yeah. about that and we're like, wow, that's so that's so crazy that they would be, you know, eating animals like like dogs and things like that. Um, but then in our country, the fact that the USDA is the one is the thing, the, the, the entity that's in charge of our puppy mills. I mean, to me, that is that's just completely stunning. Oh yeah, well it's. I mean, there was. Um, uh, we tell the story in uh, in Rescue Dogs. Um, it's a chapter called Maggie, where I worked undercover at this puppy mill. We got the place shut down. It was this really big, terrible place. But we had felony and misdemeanor counts on the target. And at one point, the judge had said to the jury, um, "I, I want to remind you, these dogs are not pets; they're livestock." Oh and that was in God. Minnesota. And so because and so the jury had to decide. Well, what do we do with this? Well, if they're livestock then the felonies can't apply. So they drop the two felony charges on the target, right? So you have those kinds of implications. And when it comes to law enforcement, you have that same kind of mentality, right? Is that, man, I I can't tell you how many cases I've worked where if it wasn't for the press picking it up and going absolutely crazy with the evidence, the local rural sheriff's department wasn't going to do anything about it. In fact, we, we have a story in the book about you know, when I had I had the goods on the target, I mean, right. it was very clear that they were they were committing cruelty, neglecting their dogs. And uh, uh, when I was on the property, uh, the puppy miller came out and he threw a shovel at me and had his guard dog chase me. I got arrested for trespass. Wow! Even though I I yeah I wasn't even trespassing. I feel like you in, in dealing dogs and also in uh, death on a factory farm. I think you encountered what my stepmom, who was a, a sheriff of a small southern town, would call the good old boy system, which is just yep. sort of like it, it's a system of law that exists out of federal and state law. It is it is just a an unspoken agreement between a community of people where, yes, these violate certain laws, but we are going to keep it all within our own culture and our own, our own community. And we make the we make the call. Like as in the case of death on a factory farm, where a lot of the the witnesses were were sort of poo pooing actual evidence of of animal abuse because it's, yep. because you know one of them said what uh, like oh we can't all eat lettuce yep you know yeah yeah it's, it's like thinking we can't all eat lettuce makes it okay to hang crippled sows to death right right, right. it's just it's absurd yeah but so that's what I call a, a culture of cruelty where you have a community. That is, they're so used to this that, you know, who the hell is this person to come here and tell us how to do this? This is just how we do things, right, you know, right. and, 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 and if, you know, if you, if you wonder how, like, like when you see, you know, dealing dogs and death on a factory farm and you wonder how the hell can someone do this to these animals, there's a, there's a, there's a couple elements to that. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about dogs, or you're talking about chickens or whatever, Part of it is just the stress of the work environment. And man, I mean, you know, if you've worked on a farm, if you've worked at a slaughterhouse, you know, but it's, it is work that is so, it pushes you for me, what I found and what other investigators have found is that, you know, it, it, the industry wants to take people that work in, in animal agriculture and they want to just treat them like machines and not people. Right. You know, if, you're, if your willpower won't carry you past this point that you think your body is capable of, you just don't make it. I mean, it is absolute hell. Um, and then you combine that with the fact that, you know, I, I think 
I, I could be mistaken, but doesn't the State Department say that about half the agricultural workforce in the U.S. is uh, undocumented? But in my personal experience, I would say it's about 90 percent. I mean, naturally, of course, the State Department statistics on undocumented workers is not going to be accurate um, because that right. sort of it's sort of implied with the uh, with the entire term of undocumented worker. You know, again, we are speaking uh, with Pete Paxton, author of Rescue Dogs. Check out this book. Uh, this is a super important topic and a conversation uh, that isn't had enough in this country. So when it comes to factory farms, I, you know, I'm a meat eater. Um, I'm just as guilty as anyone else, but I despise factory farms. They've killed the American farmer and they've devastated local communities, specifically in my home state of Wisconsin. Uh, they've devastated, devastated family farms. Oh, yeah. I've, I've done an uh, undercover case in Wisconsin at a dairy. Yeah. And is, so is that where it starts? The fact that the USDA is in charge of our factory farms, also in charge of our puppy mills. It, do you feel like that is the is that the sort of cornerstone of our culture when it comes to animal rights? Uh, specifically abuses in this case, is the rise of the factory farm. And can you give a little insight into how the hell did we get here? Okay, um, that is what is responsible for so much cruelty. But I, 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 have, I have something to, to say. This is not going to be easy to hear. And I can give you all the terrible examples that you'd like. And I'm, I'm sorry that this is the truth. But it's not the factory system that causes the cruelty. Um, I have, I have worked at a dairy that had 200 cows and I saw at least as bad, if not worse cruelty than I saw at a dairy I worked at that had 11,000 cows. Mm. Um, I, I have, we, we discuss in a, in rescue dogs in a story called Emma, um, that a, a puppy mill that I went to where they literally invite you out to the puppy mill. It's, it's, it's this really sweet, couple that runs it. They're very nice people. Um, the dogs have a lot more space than you'd see at a normal puppy mill. And a dog that I got out of there, Emma, um, uh, who wouldn't breed for them, her, she had to have over 20 teeth pulled because she was only three years old, a little chihuahua, but she had over 20 teeth pulled that were, that were rotten in her head. The, the infection had gone through her skull to her nasal cavity and it had Jeez. caused a heart arrhythmia. And, and a rescue of all places, Pug Rescue of New England took her and found a permanent home for her, right? But even the smallest, littlest places get caught up in, in using animals for, for profit. Well, how does that I'm, – I'm just saying no one wakes up in the morning and no one wakes right. up at any point in their life and is like, today – Today's the day I abuse animals. Like, right, what, right. when did this? <laughs> yeah, right. As far as the culture, you, you're there. You're you're experiencing the culture. You're feeling the emotion. You're feeling the energy. You're meeting the people. Mm-hmm. What is the catalyst for the abuse? Is it just people seeing the same? Do they start to loathe? the animals because the animals represent their job, which is something that they don't want to be doing. They represent work. And so they just start to loathe the animal. I'm just wondering, well, how do people get to the time? I, like, at, at what point are you like looking at an animal hanging and you're just like, Tuesday, huh? You know, actually, I can jump in here because yeah, I, I, I shot some footage with my uh, ex-girlfriend for uh, a little documentary about slaughterhouses. And we actually went to <laughs> a slaughterhouse in Bushwick. And um, so they have all these cages, and the, the chickens are just crammed. You can see their legs popping out the side of the cages. Their heads are popping out because there are so many in one cage. And there were so many in one of the particular cage that one actually, its body popped out of the cage because there were so many crammed in there. 
The yeah. chicken hits the factory floor, hits the, the slaughterhouse floor, and immediately starts running out towards the exit, towards the sunlight. I see the chicken look yeah. up. I see the chicken look up at the sky in sort of wonderment. And then yep. a, uh, one of the factory workers, very tired looking guy, trots out to the, to the chicken, picks it up by its neck, and just slams its body against the floor of the, of the slaughterhouse, killing it immediately. But it was so right. routine and so tiresome for the, the work. It just, he, he was just completely dead-eyed about it. Because I think if you do work in these, these long, arduous, very depressing conditions— the chickens really do become the animal, the livestock, the dogs. They become a commodity right. that are like anything else, like a bottle of wine on a shelf. Uh, well, you don't smash a bottle of wine well, on a shelf. Well, I'll tell you that. Well, you smell. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yes. You would treat. Not, you actually, you would treat a bottle of wine with more respect <laughs> yeah, exactly. than right, some right. of these animals. But um, I think there is something about it. Yeah. To the the conditions create uh, a dehumanized version of yourself, where you're treating living things as if they are what you know a bale of hay uh their but commodities then, and, and pete perhaps you can you can attest to this then also so the people the workers themselves are also they're not being treated like kings either oh no they're being treated terribly yeah but uh, uh you know travis you're a thousand percent right on that in fact if let's just say i was to train you to go undercover into you know a factory farm or slaughterhouse or a puppy mill and you were to you know like if you're nervous and you're like oh man well how, like if i start seeing this terrible stuff how long is it going to take me to like get desensitized and get past it? And the honest right. answer, less than a day. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to be so right. enamored with so much violence that's going to hit your senses so hard that, that all of a sudden you're just numb to it right away. Well, when you were, when you were right. undercover, you're a vegan. I'm also, I also don't eat meat, but you ate meat and you did everything that was expected of you. Uh, you, you worked at McDonald's to pay yep. for your living situation. You did all these things that really you were like a double agent right, right. Um, in this yeah. situation. It was incredible. Um, yeah. But and then you you would witness animals being tortured and murdered brutally. And you just really did ha just have to watch it and not bat an eye because even a drop of sweat that would give you away would would blow your cover. And some of these guys would literally blow you away. Right. It'd be like the movie Total Recall when the dude sweats and he realizes it's not the dream. Yes. And then you get a bullet in your brain. Right. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, that's that's right. Travis yeah. is, is right. This is life and death. This was like you would have been you would have been brought to the backfield and buried along with the cows. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, uh, you know, on on that uh, on that case, especially, you know, on that on that first case, um, I remember there was a guy there. This guy, Richard, he would walk around with a 22 pistol and a quick draw holster. And um, it was always something off about Richard. Um, the other two guys that I worked closely with, it was clear they had some kind of a drug issue. Uh, shortly after I left, Richard was uh, arrested because he, uh, at least what the U.S. Attorney's Office told me, was that he, he uh, was drinking while on his medication, found out his girlfriend was cheating on him. And so while he was high, he kidnapped her at gunpoint, took her to the boyfriend's house, and just started unloading his pistol on the house till the cops showed up. Jeez. You know, um, and so I got the vibe off of him. I just, you know, that, that, that something like that was the case that just hadn't happened yet. And so, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was a very real concern, you know, is that, um, and, and, and it, what, what it was realistically, what I was realistically worried about was that there was a lot of heat on that target. So they were suspicious as hell of me. And I had to try to shake that heat more than once. And I thought, you know, if they, find out who I am, they see a wire, something goes on, they're going to want to stop me. 
and I'm not going to let him stop me. I knew for a fact that the local police couldn't be trusted. While reporting to the U.S. Attorney's Office, we were specifically keeping the entire case away from local law enforcement. Wow. And I thought, you know, um, I'm, uh, I'm a, like, it's going to get physical to leave, and I'm going to be outnumbered, and it's going to get – and these guys, they don't think about the consequences of what they do. You know, um, there's, you know, that's, that's part of the, you know, you, you asked Ben about, you know, the, what people go through working at these places and, and the reason that, that they're, you know, companies and individuals are able to get away with treating them so abysmally is because you have people that they're either undocumented or, you know, they have a felony, Right. right. And 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 you can tell at times when you're working with someone and they're an otherwise smart, controlled individual and, you know, that they just they had a bad circumstance and that's why they're there. But, man, sometimes you work with these people that are like it's like, you know, I I remember working working with a guy once that he's talking to me. He's quoting the Bible to me. He's telling me how I need to love. I need to love Jesus. And then he just snaps and someone says something to him and he's just screaming about how he's going to beat this guy's face in if this guy does one more damn thing to him. And then he turns to me and he's like, so anyway, you got to love Jesus, man. You've got to be in <laughs> right. the part. And I'm just, I'm just like, what the hell is going on? You know? Right. I will, I will say like that, you know, for the all the danger that you go through, I think the exposés that you do and a lot of other people do uh, in terms of like releasing documentaries about animal rights – and um, exposing uh, factory farming um, abuses. These are really important because there is really nothing in the middle ground between the food you get at a grocery store or a restaurant and the super far away factory farming that is so remote and so distant from the average person. So what is in the middle ground there except for somebody like you saying, here's what's really happening. And what what else can we, what else can we do to create, you know, to... Um, move well, those two points to the center. And and to that point, you know, I think that we do live in an era where we are so separated from our food. But let's talk about that. So we're at the so we're at the mill stage. Um, the animals. Let's let's we got the puppy mills, but let's talk about the slaughterhouses as well. Sort of moving on a little bit sure, to that sure. area. So how does it go from animal slaughtered uh, to Whole Foods. How does it go from animal slaughtered, you know, okay. to your yeah. local supermarket? What is that like? And it, it, who picks up these animals? I mean, it it just seems like there has to be more people along the supply chain uh, that would notice when when things are going so horribly. Or again, it's just that systemic. Yeah. So um, that's a great question, and that's why you have factory farms is because you have an increasing population primarily living in major metropolitan areas and and you know proportionally just far fewer people living in the in rural areas where they're producing our food right, right. so you got to get it to there right so you know so before it gets to the grocery store it's going to be you know most of uh, most of the stuff is going to be at a warehouse right so it's everything's mixed together and it's got a label on it and someone picks it up but before it gets to there it has to come from all of the different major packing plants and slaughterhouses, right? And they will, they will handle their own or they'll handle a variety of stuff, right? Well, for it to get to that major – because, you know, you, you, can, you can already start to see someone has to drive this stuff. And you don't want to be picking it up from a million different warehouses or a million slaughterhouses, right? You also don't want to have to pick up from a million different farms. That's why there's factory farms, 
Right. So someone has gone out there and has collected the eggs or the milk or the chickens or whatever the case is, and they are getting they are trying to clear out that facility and then get it off to the plant and that plant's going to set. So by, by the, you know, um, um, part of what I've had to do is I've had to help, uh, I've had to prove that the product coming that starts at this farm, whether that's an egg or that's a gallon of milk or that's a chicken, whatever the case is that it in fact is ending up at this Whole Foods or at that Kroger or at this Olive Garden or whatever the hell the case is, right? Right. And some and sometimes it's a little more clear cut, right? Sometimes it's like, well, if it's a carton of eggs, this facility, this egg facility has a packing code. So when the eggs come up, there's a there's a packing code. It starts with a P, and that's how you know it's from this facility. And working undercover here, you know, uh, myself or someone else has filmed it, right? We mm. we filmed the chickens kept recording, walked right through to the packing machine, walked right through, filmed the box, and then someone else at a grocery store filmed that same damn code and you got it. But mm. but what do you do if, you know, if it's that it's just, if it's a slaughterhouse that picks up uh, chickens from all kinds of different farms that they contract, that are, that are contracted under their name, how do you know the chicken that comes from your place Especially, what if there's two slaughterhouses in the area under that name, right? Where's the chicken going exactly? Right. And once it gets there, what does it get mixed with, and where does it get sent to? And that that makes it very, very difficult to determine yeah. exactly. You know, people say we buy from these farms or from from this place. I mean. How the hell do you really know? Well, and of course, the entire marketing campaign, specifically with something like Jeff Bezos's own Whole Foods, is that it's all natural. Everything is like organic. I mean, it's all nonsense, obviously. It uh, is it, nonsense. Yeah. But it seems like the further away we get from our food, the the more marketing is where it's just like it's just it's just Sunday morning in America and the chickens, you know, the chickens are kind and uh -huh. everything is beautiful. But the reality is just getting so much more bleak. When it when it comes to trying to figure out whether you have the big or the small place or why someone could do something and how bleak that is, should we stay in the deep end on this? Do you want me to give you some specifics on the different types of facilities? Yes, absolutely. And then I also I want okay. to talk about the marketing behind it because the marketing machine has got to be massive for these companies. And then I also want to talk about um, how how much at risk are we for a foodborne epidemic. It seems like there's a lot of safety oh, yeah. issues going on. But those two things, <laughs> yeah. and then we'll get back to puppy mills. And then lastly, I want to talk about solutions because uh, we have to try to change these things. But yes, go in uh, and discuss um, first what we were going to discuss. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I laugh because not because foodborne epidemics are funny, but because... I, it, because it, yeah, it seems I, I, I'm, I'm surprised there's not more of them. Um, right. But so, uh, so, so, you know, if you're seeing footage and you're watching people being a living hell out of animals and you're wondering like, how does that happen? Um, there's a common thread, but I can briefly explain with different facilities how that can happen. So let's yes. just say you have a dairy, right? And it doesn't matter if you got five cows, you got 8,000 cows. If you're wondering why at every dairy investigation, you see people punching and kicking cows in the face, it's because of the young cows and the old cows. So when you have a first-time heifer, that means she had her first calf, she has to learn how to get milk. You know, cows don't produce milk without having a calf. Right. So they just had their first calf, and now they have to learn, i got to walk through these stalls, 
And then I got to have milkers put on me. They're going to be scared. They're going to be uncooperative. Workers can get kicked and can get, you know, hit and they get frustrated. They beat the hell out of the cows. Right. Right. And then if it's an old cow, she's going to slip and she's going to fall because she's old and she's weak. And the go-to way when you have, man, you're on a deadline. You got, you got stuff to do. The go-to way to get that cow up, beat the living hell out of her until she stands. Well, you gotta go. You gotta go hunt Easter eggs, and these you Easter gotta, eggs are not gonna hunt themselves. Exactly. That's exactly right. Someone's gotta pick up the eggs, so that cow needs to get her ass up so you can do that. Um, wow. When it comes to uh, egg farms, speaking of eggs, uh, the go-to thing you want to look for there is if it's a caged facility. You know, you have like a cage, and it's got uh, uh, the bottom of the cage slopes forward slightly so that when they lay an egg, gravity sends it down to a belt, and the belt sends it off to a conveyor to go get packed. Right. Well, those hens start to get weak and sick because they're breathing a lot of ammonia and they're in terrible conditions. And so they start to slide down to the front of the cage. Uh, generally, the tip of a wing or the shoulder you know, of a wing and their head will slide underneath that area. They get stuck. And for the other hens to get access to their food and water that's at the front of the cage, they have to step on top of that hen. Right now, if it's a cage-free facility, then it's that they're just going to lay on the ground and then they can't get up to access food or water. But either way, what happens is that a worker comes by and they have a trash can that they're piling the dead in. There's always dead every morning you go through and you pick them up. The way you're supposed to kill the hens is supposed to grab them by the head, swing them in a circle and try and break their neck. But when you do that, the poop goes flying out of them in a big circle. So the go-to crime to look for at an egg farm is that the workers will pick them up live dump them in the trash can and bury them beneath their own dead. And if you're at a hog farm, it's that people will thump the piglets by bashing their heads into the floor. If the piglet is sick or weak or something. And some people, they don't want to take the time or they don't have the strength or the heart to keep bashing the piglet's head. So they'll hit their head into the ground and the piglet will still be alive. And they just turn away and try to convince themselves, not my problem. Or if a sow who's going from farrowing to gestation, does you know she steps out and she's like wait a minute i have two minutes of freedom not in a cage and she won't move people beat the living hell out of him right. so I, I could go on and on and on but you can instantly start to see how in that environment cruelty becomes normal right right uh pete paxton author of rescue dogs we started the conversation talking about dogs and we will get back to dogs um but let's stick here with the factory farms because obviously we are massive consumers in this culture we're massive consumers of all kinds of wonderful foods uh that mcdonald's Mm -hmm. and hardy's and uh burger king have to offer (laughs) how likely is it that we see a foodborne epidemic within that that could have catastrophic toll on this country because it seems like there's a lot of un- there's it, it just doesn't seem like these places are very well regulated and also it seems like if you have a workforce that is so desensitized to violence uh, and spinning spinning chickens around until they crap all over the walls seems like we may have a problem at some point in the near future you know, I'm surprised that there hasn't been a lot more. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've only worked at one broiler farm, which is, you know, uh, broilers are chickens raised for meat. And there was an E. coli outbreak. And I remember I was freaked out by that. I'm like, what the? And then I learned an E. coli outbreak is perfectly normal on a chicken farm. It's just the way it is. And so what they do is they come in with medicated feed, and then that was supposed to help control the problem. But, but chickens were dying left and right, right, right. Now, if it's organic organic you're not going to be giving a medicine 
and if there's and, and a lot of medicines have to have a certain withdrawal time. So like, you know, if you want to treat an animal and but the animal's going to go to slaughter soon, um, and you can, and the withdrawal time for the drug won't won't you know won't make it. You just don't treat the animal, and the animal goes to slaughter sick, and you just say, well, let's see what'll happen. No, so when it comes to like organic or free range, what does that mean? You know, because we know what it means in theory, but we talk about oh this is better again going back to whole foods everyone's like it's organic it's 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 you know grain fed right you know free range what does that actually mean okay yeah so free range is supposed to mean that the animals are all running around playing hopscotch together in a giant field right but right. um but that's not really the case um you know it it's i have seen some egg farms where the, the chickens had they had space to run um, but I would see the same exact types of veterinary care violations um, uh, and neglect violations as I'd see at any other facility. It was just, it was just no difference for that, right? Um, there were live ones dumped with the dead in the corner, right? But, you know, for most of them, it's that if they have to have access to outdoors, that access to outdoors can be the most limited space they can possibly offer. It does not mean animals running around happy in open fields. Now, if we want to, and again, listeners, Bear with me on this, because because you know I, I did, this is this is kind of a hard pill to swallow, in case anything hasn't been yet. But when we think, okay, well, I know someone that has a farm where they only have a few cows, and the cows honestly do have a whole bunch of space to run. The only problem with that, besides slaughter and transport and all of that, the only problem is that if everyone wanted to eat animals like that we go right back to factory farming because there's no space and it's not practical to pick up those animals and trucks and transport them to everywhere. That's why we have factory farms right. is because there's such a high demand. Right. As in terms of the future, are you more cynical or are you more pessimistic about the sort of the solving the problem of animal rights abuse? Because as we go forward in this country, what makes money is not uh, advocating for animal rights, but instead more and more different variations of fast casual restaurants you know like th that has definitely a more accelerationist potential than than people have sort of changing their hearts about this uh this epidemic you know like i i almost feel like the way to shock people into changing would be something like a foodborne illness that becomes widespread. You know, like if people got pork chop fever, then suddenly Ooh, right. that's a good one. Then suddenly maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we would sort of change the way we look at our food. But are you more pessimistic? Are you are you more cynical or are you more positive about what where we're going as a country? Um, I'm I'm a I'm more optimistic than I used to be, and the reason is that um um, while I was just out in the field recently, um, there's a lot of areas where I go where it's that I I will eat um, chips and cliff bars and survive off of that until I can make it to a major town and get some, you know, uh, tofu in my Thai food. Right. right. And that's about it. I can't tell you how many impossible burgers I ate at Burger King. I don't want to Me admit too. how many I ate <laughs> just recently in the littlest towns out in the middle of the Midwest. And um, that was unthinkable when I, when I first became, you know, vegan. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think that 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 what we're seeing is is we're seeing that people are understanding that animal agriculture is linked to climate change, 
and you know that that reducing the amount of animals that we eat that is that is an absolute necessity if we want to try to save the planet i think that if there was to be if there was to be a foodborne illness that's something that would probably prompt a lot of people to want to to want to change um, it's just that what we also have to do is we also have to solve the food desert problem. You know, people right, that right. live out and out in rural areas where the only place they can go to is Walmart or they live in the inner city and, you know, Hey, eating healthy is expensive. That's exactly. the bottom line, right? Uh, we need, you know, you know, Ben, you were talking earlier about how do we transition, you know, towards doing things better for dogs. And there's certain legislative steps we've been taking. that has been working and reducing the amount of puppy mills when it comes to factory farms and slaughter. Uh, what we need to do is as, as people transition towards more plant-based alternatives, companies are starting to pick up on that and realize we need to start making more plant-based alternatives. I mean, we're already subsidizing the agriculture industry so that they can have a bunch of animals and, you know, and, 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 and then not be able to sell the product. Right. They can make right. a whole bunch of milk and then it's going to go nowhere. Well, what we need is 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 we need to be able to subsidize them to be able to grow the things that for people like me are so expensive. I rarely eat them. Avocados and mangoes and fresh blueberries and asparagus. I mean, it, it, it's expensive. Right. But with with all of the farmers that are out there that are are growing uh, crops used to feed livestock or that are raising livestock, there's alternatives they could have and a need for it too, so that we could have healthier, more food that's more affordable for everybody. That'll be the slow transition. And that's a perfect transition into the marketing conversation I want to have here briefly. Um, when it comes to what's hip, what's cool, uh, it's it's not just cow milk anymore. It's almond milk. It's soy milk. It's all of these things. Yep. But what what about the issue when it comes to almonds, for example? It ca it takes so much water. I believe it's two gallons per almond. It's crazy how much resources it takes for soybeans and things like that. So is there what is so it's it seems like the alternative is even you know there is no perfect alternative. Um, well, yeah, it's, you know, uh, I think that, I think that with the all, with the alternative milks, um, in specific, I mean, all of them are better, you know, um, all of them are going to produce, you know, they're going to be less waste. It's going to be better for the environment. Obviously it, it, it eliminates animal abuse, um, and they're going to be healthier. So, um, um, I think that, I think that what we really need is, is when it comes to like a lot of the alternative meats, we need stuff that's, uh, you know, making something that's better for the environment is one thing. Right. Um, eliminating animal cruelty, that's a cinch. Making something that's super healthy and is not processed but is convenient, that's going to be more difficult. I, I love the Beyond Burger and I love the Impossible Burger. I'm not going to eat three of them a day, right. you know, or even eat them every day, you know. But, but, but um, I, I, I would know that if I'm, if I'm getting something like that, you know, that it's, it's certainly going to be, uh, uh, or, you know, if, if, if someone's out there and they're like, well, I'm going to give this a shot. Is this really doing something? I mean, it absolutely is doing something, uh, to help the environment. You know, um, we just have to, uh, yeah, I, I can't, you can't discuss this without, without getting political quick. Um, well, it's a political show, so you feel free to get political with it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Trump administration has rolled back environmental pr uh, protections to an insane degree. In fact, even when it comes to dogs, two weeks after Trump took office, the public's access 
to USDA inspection reports of puppy mills was taken down. Wow. So if you're at a pet store and you're like, you say that this is your breeder, listen, I want to make sure they're okay. Let me go online. Let me look at their inspection reports. You can't even do that anymore. Right. You know, so if, if, if they don't if they don't care about puppies, they sure as hell do not care about the environment. So, you know, yeah, we, we need uh, uh, we need environmental protections um, that are going to be far stricter and subsidies for farmers to make transitions. Because mm. when it comes to anything like this, you know, you have that you have a cultural shift that is happening right now. And it's just that it's that kind of like that that forced regulation that can be a hard pill for some of the population to swallow. And I'm fearing that we're at a point where that's what we need to do. That needs to be the next move is that there needs to be some forced regulation that some states aren't going to be too excited about. Right. But I mean, it does seem like the way that they're marketing the Impossible Burger, I, I, I believe it's selling fairly well. Do you think it's just going to come down to the marketplace deciding we vote with our wallets? Is it going to be something where these industries, they start seeing these veggie burgers fly off the uh, fly off the grill and they're like, all right, this is actually sustainable for our bottom line, because at the end of the day. That's the only thing they care about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, Carl Jr. had the Beyond Burger come out, right? And man, I mean, it was just, you know, it was sold out quick and then, and, and it's selling great. Now that Burger King is the Impossible Burger, Dunkin' Donuts is Beyond Sausage. Um, everybody else knows that they have to keep up because right. of what's called the vegan veto, right? It's that, it's that you're like, hey, let's go get some fast food. Let's go to McDonald's. And then... And then I'd be the one guy in the group that'd be like, actually, I can't get anything at McDonald's, but how about we go to Burger King and we can all get something. And so Burger King is going to win every time. So you help defeat that vegan veto by all you have to have right. is one good option. And I think that very quickly we're going to see every place starting to have it. I mean, and I think that plays into, you know, kind of the conversation about solutions, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's really what we have to start getting to now is solutions so for the factory farm solutions beyond burger impossible burger uh you know continue to see the rise of those kinds of products when it comes down to puppy mills now let's just go back to, to puppy mills again we are talking to pete paxton uh author of rescue dogs so when it comes to puppy mills what needs to be the first step what can we as a uh as listeners we as novices what can what's the first thing that we can be doing to confront the puppy mill epidemic and what's going on uh, regarding animal cruelty? Well, uh, just like with factory farming and slaughter, where you, know, you have to provide this alternative that you can say, this is better. It's healthier. It's better for the environment. There's no animal cruelty. Same thing with puppy mills. Even like, I know you want a puppy. I know, you, I know that you have a special needs kid, and I know that you're the master of dog training, and you're convinced that you're going to train your puppy to be perfect for your family with your special needs kid. You have to explain to people like that. And that's what we do in rescue dogs is we explain dog behavior. We explain training and we also explain why the shelter dog, the rescue dog is the right fit for someone who has special needs kids, someone who has any kind of a family. And the reason is that it's a better alternative is number one, you're going to save hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Right. Possibly yeah. over a thousand dollars. Absolutely. Um, secondly, is that when you have a puppy from a puppy mill and I don't care how big, I don't care how small, 
five to six weeks of age, they take the puppy away from the mother. And so those puppies, they don't learn to not play bite. The mother's supposed to teach them that. They get separation anxiety. You know, you always hear the term separation anxiety, but it's this wide spectrum. But puppy mill puppies get it. They're, they're pulled away from the mother. They're put into a separate little whelping crate, uh, a cage for, you know, two or three weeks. They're shipped off to the pet store. Um, and and even though, you know, we all like to think we're, 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 we're masters who can take who can we're so good at nurture we can overcome any element of nature you don't know who that puppy is that puppy might might like kids might not like kids might like other dogs or not or cat you know but might might be lazy might be who knows but when you go to a rescue most good rescues they have fostered dogs taken care of them they already know do these dogs are these dogs playful are they lazy? Do they like kids? Do they like other cats? Um, they've, they've most likely done training with them. So those dogs already know how to walk on a leash. They're already house trained, yeah. right? They, 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 are, they probably already know how to sit and stay. So that is the solution is, is, is that alternative to people. And it's simply letting people know that that is a better option for them. Right. Man, it's it's such a hard thing. I'm just sitting here thinking about, you know, we talk about prison reform regularly on this show. Millions of yeah. people locked up right now, three to a cell, living living horribly. Mm-hmm. It just seems like suffering is so systemic, you know, with our cold, cold institutions and the USDA being, you know, the exact same, uh, you know, the factory farm being the exact same our prison system being the exact same. It just seems like such a systemic issue that we have in this country. You know, we got children in cages analogy. on the border and it's just, you know, I think that's the one thing when it comes to animal rights, it's hard for people. They're like, okay, we'll get to animals. Once we figure out immigration, once we figure out child separation, once we figure out the prison industrial complex, like uh-huh. we just have a lot uh-huh. of work to do is, is yeah, all it seems I'm like, thinking about. It seems like we live in a culture of cruelty, just yeah. like writ large. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's, you know, and the problem we have is that there's always those of us where we're of an age where we look at this and we say, nope, this is wrong. I don't want to put up with this. But there's a generation above us that will say, listen, that's just the way it is. Right. And and that and and the way we want culture to shift is so dramatic that they're not really willing to make that shift. And also, I, I don't think they're willing to realize the mistakes that they've made. People don't they don't like to admit when they're wrong. It just is. It's human nature. It's a massive, massive. Especially flaw. if you're doing some heinous shit, like you know the the type of brutal killing that has happened with uh, with animals for decades now. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember there was a puppy miller that I saw where a, a very, very common problem uh, when you rescue a, a puppy mill dog, and many of them, I many of them, they, these dogs turn out to be absolutely perfectly fine, even if they're taken right out of a puppy mill. Um, which by the way, before I forget to mention it, that's something that, uh, is in rescue dogs is, is it's explained, uh, you know, we explain how you can rescue a dog, not just like, not just here's why you should go to a shelter, but how you rescue a dog off the street, how you rescue a dog from an abusive situation. What's the standard operating procedure for those different things. Right. Right. And from a puppy mill, you know, it's that, it's that, you know, you have dogs where it's a very common thing. They come out of the puppy mill. And you take them out and you put them on the ground and they will pace in a circle that is the size of the enclosure they were in. If it was a little cage, it's like a little two foot circle. If they were in a pen, they make a five foot circle. They don't know what the hell else to do. So when wow. you make the prison analogy, it's very, very fitting. Right, right. 
Well, Pete Paxton, thank you so much for informing our audience. I mean, it's it's a it's a tough subject, and I mean, everyone loves dogs and everyone loves animals, and um, it's it's one of those weird things where maybe if we could improve that first, because you know it's hard when it comes to people. Everyone always has a person they don't like in their life. When it comes to animals, it's very difficult to find someone who's like, if I look at another dog, I'm going to, if I look at a chihuahua, I'm going to freak out. Right. <laughs> Maybe we can start with fixing our shelter system, fixing our um, uh, breeding system when it comes to animals, and then get to people. I don't know. It's just, we have to start somewhere when it comes to this culture of cruelty, as, as Travis put it, which I thought was perfect, because it's a... Um, we, we just have to do a lot better, I think. Oh, absolutely. That's the whole point of rescue dogs is to get people informed. Because um, when it comes to types of legislation, I can say real quick, we discuss what types of legislation have reduced puppy mills. And so and to let people know what kinds of legislation. Yeah. What, what does that look like? What, like, because, you know, it's one of those things where it's easy to say we have to legislate. But what would that, a piece of legislation? What's the verbiage of that? How would you even begin to uh, to describe what needs to be changed? Sure. It's easier than you think. Um, of course, it's wonderful when you say pet stores cannot own or, or make it, again, any monetary benefit off, pup, off of puppies. That, like, that hits the puppy mill industry hard, right? Um, even a small piece of legislation. For example, in New York City, when they said you cannot buy puppies from a broker, it has to come directly from a breeder, mm-hmm. which means all, there's, there's a lot of puppy millers that the brokers come and pick up all their litters and then distribute them because they have no other way to transport the puppies to the pet store. I remember when that legislation was being proposed and I was visiting puppy mills in the Midwest and, and numerous puppy millers were just bitching and complaining to me saying that's going to kill our business. And sure enough, the number of puppy mills started going down. When you pass a law that says, you can have all the dogs that you want, but every single one of your dogs has to have access to the ground. Man, when, when Pennsylvania did that, mm. the number of puppy mills just started just, just drastically wow. getting cut. Because if you have 500 dogs, what are you going to do? How are you going to keep that clean if they all have to have access? That's why you put them on cage wire, right? Wow. So little mm. bits of legislation like that have a far greater effect than you can anticipate. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I am all for, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put people out of jobs. I don't want to put people out of work. But in this case, you can get an Etsy account. There's so many other ways to make money uh, that don't oh, that yeah. are dependent on, on, you know, torturing, uh, torturing dogs. Oh, yeah. I suppose for our cat lovers out there, it's, is it similar for cats? I, I, you don't really hear about cat mills. I, I hate to say, you know, there's not as many uh, kitten mills. I have been to several and I, I can tell everybody. If you're doubting anything I've said, go to it's CAPS. Go to caps-web.org. You'll look at the actual footage that myself and other investigators have gotten. Um, you'll see the kitten mills that I visited. I hate to say, yeah, they're pretty bad. Um, you can go to humanesociety.org, Humane Society of the United States. They've been, um, you know, cat, uh, I, I do a lot of undercover work at pet stores for caps, and Humane yeah. Society has gone to them. You will see the footage for yourself verifying everything we're saying. Well, so what, just lastly, I guess, yeah, what are the good companies? ASPCA, I know Pete is kind of horse shit. What, what are some good, what are, what are some good companies that I, I can go, you can give 10 bucks a month or something like that, trustworthy, because it's, the charity business is so uh, complex and a lot of times it's very predatory. 
Um, so what's what's a company, what are a few charities people can actually trust? I can tell you this. The Companion Animal Protection Society, um, they're my primary client when it comes to puppy mills. I mean, 99% of my pet store puppy mill work is for them. Okay. There is no organization that exists that has a bigger database of raw evidence of puppy mills than the Companion Animal Protection Society. So they're okay. a great one. That's CAPS. That's CAPS, yeah. I, I also, I mean, I do love the Humane Society of the United States. Um, um, they've done a lot of great undercover work at you know, Petland uh, pet stores. And if it comes to dogs and cats, your local rescue or shelter, yeah. just donate to them. Uh, if, you can, if you can volunteer and give your time. That's, that's in, in, in the a later part of the book, Rescue Dogs, we explain that. All the ways to help dogs, even if you can't adopt or foster one. And, and volunteering and donating is right up in there. Um, you know, because then you know where your money's going, you're going to make a huge difference. Awesome. Pete Paxton, check out his book, Rescue Dogs. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Really appreciate having you here. That was super informative. Thank you so much. I have to tell you that my girlfriend has been texting me and she says she wants me to tell you that she loves Puffin. Okay, good. Puffin. <laughs> tell her Puffin says, I love you too. <laughs> well, you got it. You guys have been great. It's been an honor. I really appreciate it. All right. There was our interview with Pete Paxton. Informative. And not at all sad. I mean, it, it, it's tragic. Um, and, you know, I've had my dog stolen before. I had a golden retriever named Teddy who loved the country music channel. Uh-huh. And he would sit there and watch the country music channel. Very well trained. And I think somebody in my neighborhood or some word got out about my amazing dog. And somebody broke into our house yep. and stole my dog. And now seeing. He's in Penn State somewhere getting, getting uh, cut in half. Well, that's very beautiful of you to say. Yeah. Luckily, this was when I was 10. So I'd, I have very little recollection of it. But yeah, I mean, it, it is insane to think that. Uh, this is going on at such a it's a widespread epidemic it's huge. of uh, your your furry little friends need help and the fact that there's not a bigger outcry is uh, incredible and sad and uh, well, hey man, demoralizing. There was, there was hardly an outcry over what's happening on the border, and there is still hardly an outcry of what, about what's yeah, going it, on. It, it also in reminds our me. It so. reminds me, like if sex trafficking can happen, if human trafficking can happen, what uh, what hope is there for animals? Yeah, you know, if we can treat other humans the way we treat humans in the year 2019, if Epstein's victims can just be cast aside as what what hope does a fucking Chihuahua have? Right, other than the grit of the Chihuahua Warrior. Um, all right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was informative. Yes. Very informative. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Just I mean, yell, at, yell at all your government officials about the Patriot Act. Just go tweet at them. I don't even know what to do. Tweet or call them. Scream. Or scream at, scream therapy. Scream to the heavens. Just like go scream at DC and just be like, stop. Stop killing they're us, good at, They're good at protesting in D.C. Remember when we yeah. we, wrote, we drove into D.C. and they were just protesting? Like, well, the cops at, just lead the way. We don't really have real protests <laughs> right, here. Right, right. I guess you're right. Everything was more, is just, it was more like yeah, a, parade. A, a protest sponsored by Burger King. Exactly. Have it your way. And then they just like protest that. But Have the Impossible Burger. Have the Impossible Burger. Um, all right, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you soon. Hail yourselves. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. 
It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.